Welcome to the AWS TechCast. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 55 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And for today's show, we're going to go against the grain and do something we haven't done on Tech Chat for some time, and that's have a special guest. Times are changing. The de facto starting point for all of my customers are either serverless or containers. Now, I know a thing or two, maybe even three about containers, but there are times when I need an answer or someone to help me to go really deep, and I call on a guy, and that guy is Mitch, Mitch Beaumont. Welcome to the show, Mitch. Hello, Shane, long-time listener and first-time guest. Thank you very much for having me today, and I'm really looking forward to diving deep into containers with you. Yeah, look, just for perspective, I've known Mitch, I think, keep me honest here, about three years, and he's one of those guys who really knows what he's talking about. I think these days we probably cross paths more often either in each other's offices or in an airport. Now, if you want to bring a gun to a container fight, this is the man you want. Now, before we get started today, let me thank those who attended AWS Community Day in Melbourne last week. Very humbling to see and meet some Tech Chat followers in person. And as an extra bit of something something to spice it up, we even had Jeff Barr attend. Now, Mitch, purple is taken, but have you ever thought about dyeing your hair? There was a time many years ago, I was a lead singer in a high school grunge band. I had shoulder length hair, and yes, I did decide to dye it pink at at that time, it felt like the right thing to do, but let's just keep that between you and I, shall we? Oh, wow. I uh, can only imagine. So look, today, I'm going to play second fiddle to our guest and use today as a bit of q and I'm going to walk through some questions that I've heard in the field, forums, and maybe those I'm personally interested in. But before we do that, a quick lap around the world that is AWS. A few recent events have passed that we spoke about in past episodes. Firstly, our AWS Builders online event occurred in the last week of August. Appreciate the emails. The PaaS I spoke about was not platform as a service, but Pepper as a service. So we'll be sure to get swag your way for those who responded back in. Shane, Shane, Shane. These all sound like things in the past. Isn't it time we put the new in news? Maybe it is. Okay, like a software release here, I think you're telling me I need to roll forward. Summer season is still on, but I feel we're nearing the end. And as a reminder, I did see a message pop up in my inbox reminding me that there is less than 100 days to reinvent. Can you believe it, Mitch? Less than 100 days. Crazy. In the coming weeks, we have the Public Sector Summit in New Delhi in India on September 6th, Bahrain Summit in Bahrain on September 15th. So that is the latest AWS region to launch, and it's great to see that we're having a special summit day just there straight after region launch. Now, last episode, Pete told us about an increased Spark performance with EMR 5.25. Well, EMR 5.26 was released on August 28th, and it's claiming under certain circumstances to provide up to 16 times the performance of EMR 5.25, some pretty bold claims. Now, without diving into the details, this is a perfect example of keeping your finger on the pulse, as often new releases can not only increase performance, but drive costs down. We not only see this in traditional compute, but also in software. Now, EMR has gone, as I mentioned, from 5.25 to 5.26 in one month. There is an RSS feed, So if EMR is your thing, you can subscribe to the changelog. Speaking of changelogs, changes in 5.26 bring focus on dynamic partition pruning, distinct before intersect, flattening scalar subqueries, optimized join reorder, bloom filter join. 
Quickly, EMR 5.26 integration is in beta for Lake Formation. You know that new service we just launched. Numbers are one thing, so see the EMR performance documentation, which details benchmarking methodology as your mileage may vary. Region-wise, we're still at 22 regions with the recent addition of Bahrain and three more announced. I think this is only the second episode to which our edge locations haven't changed episode to episode. Still 188, and I say that as, you know, still. But really, with 188 edge locations, an edge location isn't too far away in most cases of the world to accelerate your content and get your bits to your end users faster whilst reducing cost and increasing your security posture, bringing all the goodness that CloudFront brings. Mitch, I think that's a wrap-up of the news, so on with the show. Now, we can tell a lot about our audience here on TechChat. Our podcasting platform collects a lot of generic metrics about you, the listener, around device usage, device type, geography, and so on. There is a lot, obviously, it still can't tell us. Look, we know you're all passionate technologists, but for many of you, AWS may be the only thing you know of. Mitch, we are obviously here today to talk about containers, so let's start from the start. Many people may think containers and instantly think Docker. I know, you know that's something I always hear in the field, and that Docker brought us containers, but that's really far from the truth. My first foray into the container space was with Lexi, or Linux containers, in about 2007. I had varying amounts of success, but it really whet my appetite on how amazing containers can be. I'm going to turn the tables here a bit, Shane, and start by asking you a question, if that's all right. So interested to know why you were using containers back in 2007, and what were some of the benefits that you experienced? 2007 was back in the midst of my hosting days. Apache 1.3 and IS6, even 5, was kind of my life. You know, At the stage, we were putting 500 or so websites per server, but there are issues. Would you believe people would sign up for hosting just to wreak havoc? Often they'd upload an application such as PHP BB, you know, have a vulnerability and try and gain access to the entire system, escape the boundary of Chirrut or the NTFS permissions, application pool and so on. What Lexi provided us was deeper process isolation and really nobody likes being you know, woken up to a phone call or a page having a server full of websites to face, you know. Something I really hated, those sneaky people uploading all permutations of the default documents, you know, the index, the default HTML, default ASP, etc., with their often highly politicized messages. Containers allowed us to carve up our machines into, I guess, pseudo virtual machines and offer at the time a VPS or virtual private server-like offering to customers who needed a bit more than what shared hosting could provide. But, you know, there were issues. The stability of Lexi at times, let's say, was less than optimal, we ended up having to scrap it, but you could see the promise containers were providing. You're showing your vintage now, Shane, it's wonderful. So containers is a really broad term from a usability perspective. We think about containers as the backbone of modern applications and modern application development. They provide a mechanism for distributing and running software with varying degrees of isolation and repeatability. Some of the problems that software engineers have traditionally faced around drift in terms of things like dependency or configuration drift and as software moves between different stages of its lifecycle are nicely addressed thanks to these image-based technologies that are supported by deploying containers. Taking a step back, containers have been around for a while now, all the way back to, I think it was about the 1970s, which was when Chirrut system or the Chirrut system call was added into Unix. Uh, to Unix. So Chirrut was used to change the root directory of a process or any of its child processes to some other location on the file system. Once you chirruted that process, that process couldn't modify files outside of its own newly designated directory tree. It was an early form of process isolation or sandboxing. 
Whilst we're talking about containers today and we use the term containers a lot, there isn't really a component or a module sitting inside the Linux kernel that's called a container. Containers are made up using a collection of primitives that sit deep inside the Linux kernel. Just quickly, those primitives. Namespaces. We use these to provide visibility controls and isolation for things like networking and file systems and process IDs and user IDs. Control groups, and this is what limits the resources to a given container, so things like CPU, memory, or disk I.O. And we've got Linux capabilities, which provide more fine-grained access control to things like Linux system calls, rather than just switching between root user and non-root user. And we've got setcom profiles that enable us to disable other types of system calls. And we have Linux security modules, and you may have heard of modules like AppArmor or SE Linux that help us provide resource access controls to things like file systems and files. So that's a bit of background on containers. And builders have been able to run containers on top of EC2 and AWS for some time now. But post around about 2013, as Docker started to drive a positive push in the adoption curve of containers, a lot of our customers started asking us to help them run their containerized applications. So why do you think that was? You know, speaking from my Lexi experience, hosting stability at times was an issue. What was different about Docker? Docker brought some really interesting innovations to the table. One of the good examples is things like layers. And layers meant that you could share some of the components between different container images, which optimized the deployment of your containerized application because only deltas needed to be downloaded or copied from server to server instead of full images. Less to copy, faster to deploy. Along with innovations, Docker also brought to bear a really rich ecosystem of tools that Docker built around their core Docker engine. And these tools made it so much easier for engineers and developers to integrate containers into their development workflows. As for Docker and Lexi, they're kind of the same, but they're different. Both of them provide sandboxing or process sandboxing, but Lexi looks and smells a little bit more like a VM. And what I mean by that is it has its own init system, um, which means you can run multiple processes in LXC or Lexi as we call it. A number of different hosting organizations like the one that you were just talking about, Shane, would use Lexi to subdivide their Linux estate into multiple virtual Linux instances for their tenants. Unlike traditional virtual machines, Lexi doesn't use a hypervisor, which means that there is less overhead. Whilst Lexi is considered system containerization, Docker has always been positioned as a tool for application containerization. Application containers are generally lean containers focused on running one application or process really, really well and including only the things that are needed to run that application or that process. Back in the day, circa version 0.9 of Docker, I think it was, Docker used to use Lexi as an execution environment, but the maintainers of the Docker project decided to move away from Lexi and they built libcontainer, which is a standard interface for making containers within Linux. Another reason container adoption grew was the move to microservices. Whilst they aren't an entirely new concept, this new application architecture or pattern lent itself very nicely to containerization. After all, as I mentioned earlier on, application containers are designed to run a single process and microservices are designed to run one thing and do one thing very, very well. So as more applications moved to microservices and microservice-based architectures, containers became a natural fit. Now, it's not always immediately obvious what the differences are between containers and virtual machines. And since it's tech chat, I thought it would be worth highlighting some of those differences. Containers share a kernel. And as I mentioned earlier, those primitives that make up the containers are built into the Linux kernel. This is one of the reasons that containers are so fast to start and have low overhead. There's no operating system to boot. VMs, on the other hand, virtualize or emulate hardware, and you have to run a full OS on top of a virtual machine in order to use it. Each VM handles things like boot processes, which include steps like device initialization, and all of this translates to VMs typically requiring a little bit more overhead and taking a little bit longer to start up the containers to. So running a single container on your laptop is pretty straightforward but running multiple containers across multiple services represents a very different set of challenges. 
Our customers started asking us to help them run containers at scale. And in late 2014, from memory, we launched Amazon ECS, or Elastic Container Service, or the artist previously known as Amazon EC2 Container Service, which is a native AWS orchestration service to help customers schedule and scale their containers running on EC2. 2017 was a really big year for container-related changes on the AWS service stack. It was the year that we launched AWS Fargate, and I'm pretty sure you've covered Fargate in a previous episode. For those of you that missed it, Fargate is a technology that lets customers run their containerized applications without having to provision or manage EC2 instances. Now with Fargate, we took away a raft of undifferentiated heavy lifting and brought the serverless operating model to containers. But that wasn't the end of it. You've no doubt heard of Kubernetes, an open source container orchestrator that really came to life around 2015. I'm not sure if you've ever built or deployed a container cluster using Kubernetes chain, but it isn't a task that the faint of hearted would undertake. Then we heard this really loud and really clear from our customers. So in 2017, along with Fargate, we also launched Amazon EKS or Elastic Kubernetes Service, which is a fully managed, highly available Kubernetes control plane. Yeah, look, I actually haven't had a really good play with EKS or Kubernetes, but I get what you're saying. And I probably go back to my times with Amazon Elasticsearch. Pre-joining Amazon, I was you know, in the midst of configuring and playing with Elasticsearch. It was probably version four at that stage. And it was hard work. You, know, you really needed to understand how Elasticsearch worked. And you know, these days, just click a button, Amazon Elasticsearch, it takes over, it spins everything up. And I'm kind of, you know, I get what you're saying here is building your own Kubernetes cluster is hard work. EKS kind of makes it a lot easier. Is that what you're saying, Mitch? That is exactly what I'm saying. It takes away so much of that heavy lifting. Um, there is a guide that you can follow on the internet called uh, Kubernetes the Hardware. And just for fun, if you're uh, if you're bored and you're looking for something to do this weekend, I would strongly encourage you to have a crack at trying to deploy your own Kubernetes the Hardware. It's hey, uh, yeah. it's an eye opener. I've got plenty of time. You know, three kids, <laughs> got a job. You know, go for it. All good. Okay, so look, we've covered a lot of ECS and EKS topics on this show. We've also dived deep into topics such as container insights and multi-target groups with ALB. But Mitch, let's say I'm a software shop, I'm building a greenfield application, and I've come to the conclusion I'm going to containerize this. Now, there's a lot of orchestration layers to which I should choose here. I often hear in the field that it feels like Kubernetes is going to solve world hunger. You know, there's Amazon EKS, there's Amazon ECS, there's even Fargate. What would you recommend? Well, Kubernetes solving world hunger, that's a classic. And yes, I've also heard that as well. Um, so it's a really good question. It's a, it's a question that we get asked a lot by, by lots of customers. And, and I'm sure at one time or another, Shane, in your own experience, you've had uh, Docker installed on your laptop and you've started a Docker container using the Docker run command. Yeah, absolutely. Like who hasn't? And I think many of the applications these days are available not as an XE or a zip, but as a Docker image, you know, download Docker run, hey presto. Now, like I was uh, doing something for a security session and I needed to download a security vulnerability tool. It was a Docker image. So, you know, simple as, you know, and this kind of works well on my laptop when I want to dev stuff, but I'm guessing what you're going to say is this is not something that is going to scale. Absolutely, 100%. So for most use cases, you're typically running more than one container. And in some cases, in, in the really high end of town, you're probably going to be running thousands of containers. And deploying those containers across large numbers of EC2 instances is something that you really would want to automate. And I guess this is part of the job of a container orchestrator. But they, they do a bit more than that. They make decisions about what servers to start containers on based on the characteristics of those containers. So the best analogy that I've got for this is, imagine you're playing a game of Tetris. Now, when you play Tetris, you try and get blocks of all sorts of different shapes and sizes organized as efficiently as you can. If you don't do a good job, you end up with lots of unused space and eventually the game ends. 
you do a really good job, you're making good use of the slots that are available to you and, well, you know how it goes. And that's the job of a container orchestrator. I think that's something I'm going to have to steal or should I say borrow when explaining container orchestration, Mitch? Ah, not a problem. Um, so let's go back to your original question, which was what container orchestration tool do I use? Now, if this is the first time that you're planning to run a containerized application, Fargate is by far the quickest way to get started. And using tools like the Fargate CLI, which is an open source project that you can find on the AWS Labs uh, GitHub repo, um, you can have an application up and running and deployed within a matter of minutes. Those customers that are already using the AWS platform have a really low friction experience when they start out using Fargate. And we've worked really hard to make AWS the best place to run containers. And as part of our ongoing mission, we've been trying to make containers first-class citizens. Fargate and ECS, both have really deep integrations with features like IAM, security groups, auto-scaling, and elastic load balancing in all of its different flavors. And these integrations mean that things look and feel really familiar, especially for those customers that have been used to using EC2. So as I mentioned, uh, Kubernetes is an open source orchestration system. And for those customers that have already invested in Kubernetes, which could be in the term of people or tooling or training, EKS provides the perfect on-ramp in the form of a fully managed, highly available Kubernetes control plane. And when we built EKS, one of the core tenants was that it would provide a native and upstream Kubernetes experience, which means that the Kubernetes you get when you launch an Amazon EKS cluster is the same as the Kubernetes you would get if you did it yourself using an open source tool like COPS, for example. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit rogue here, Mitch. Now, we've discussed Windows containers here in the past. What are your thoughts on Windows containers? Now, I believe that the average Windows container size is nine gigabytes. Any comments here? <laughs> yes, that's a really good question. And there is, uh, there's probably a whole session we could have talking about Windows containers. But the reality is they are a thing. We're starting to see lots of our customers using Windows containers now as well. So maybe we should explore that in another episode. Sounds good. Okay, so look, that was a pretty good overview of container orchestration, Mitch. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Like, I like Fargate. I like it a lot. You know, it's that next step towards no ops. Now, it's my job here to ask the hard questions. Well, at least I think it is. Now, we know Fargate makes life easier. It really does. But as Pete and I spoke about in previous Tech Chat episode, when we discussed the SDLC, like everything in life, you know, it's give and take. For that reduced operational overhead, there are certain trade-offs. Yeah, from memory, that was the context of Lambda I think you were talking about, right? Absolutely. So you really do listen. So if we look through the lens of Fargate, what are you giving up in terms of control for the reduced operational overhead? And if that's non-negotiable, what are your options? Now, I know that this is something that you and I have talked about in the past, especially with some of our customers. So I'm going to use a few specific examples here. Um, if you're anything like me, and, and I think you are, um, then at some point in your career, you would have used SSH to connect to a server console session um, so that you could debug a problem, access some log files, or you know make that cheeky hack change to a configuration to fix a problem. Now, with Fargate, that's currently not possible, and you can't connect directly to a running container console. But again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It does discourage certain bad habits like making those hacky configuration changes to the running containers. Instead, it encourages the use of automation and configuration as code through tools and deployment pipelines. Uh, another common reason why engineers like to SSH into uh, containers is so that they can access the logs. So um, it's interesting to talk from an options perspective, ECS and Fargate and ECS and EC2 both support a wide variety of different log drivers that allow you to ship those application logs from standard out to external storage services so that you can then analyze them and extract the information you need to kind of optimize your applications. Now, part of our job as architects is to accept that there is 
trade-offs that we need to, to consider in all things that we do. Fargate removes a lot of the heavy lifting, as you alluded to earlier on, that's associated with running these large clusters of containers. And after all, there's no containers for you to worry about deploying, scaling, or patching. This means that teams can focus on the things that really differentiate them and their applications. That being said, some customers still have some very specific technical requirements that dictate how the runtimes environments that they use need to look, feel, and operate. For example, some containers might want to run privileged containers because they need to support some specific runtime tools like security introspection tools. Or you might need to use specific instance types because you have the characteristics, the workload, you might want to use GPU instances, for example. Another common requirement from customers is the ability to present persistent storage to their containers. Some of these features aren't yet available through Fargate. If you find yourselves in those situations where you want to use Fargate, but you've got some specific requirements that you don't think quite fit into that Fargate model, it's probably a really good idea to have a chat with your friendly neighborhood solutions architect so that they can work with you to explore some of those options. Using ECS with EC2 launch type might be a better choice in those situations. So it's not a cake and eat it all situation. You know, it's trade-offs that we're talking about here. By reducing the operational overhead, there are certain privileges and or options that just won't be available. Yeah, that's the case today, Shane. But as you know, we're constantly listening to customer feedback. We're learning more about their specific use cases and their needs. We use that information then to continually and incrementally add new features to services like ECS and EKS. Yeah, look, I usually pivot many of these concerns around, you know, are they actually required? So let's look at the need to be able to SSH into a container. You know, do you really need to be able to SSH in that container and, you know, edit that configuration file, that host file, etc.? You know, and you might get, of course we do. But, you know, this may be something we've done in the past, but they may not be valid modern approaches. You know, realistically, should you be actually SSHing in and changing configuration and snowflaking that container? The best approach would be the changes in source, rebuild, redeploy. And that's my point. You may just want SSH access in this scenario, but is it really a need or is it just something you want because you've historically had it? Think about trade-offs. And this is the advice we as solution architects dispense on a regular basis. Okay, so speaking of wants versus needs, customers have wants. They do, Mitch, they really do. But for containers, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And and I guess one of the interesting things for some of our really core container services uh, that we did recently is that we made our roadmap public. So why did we make this public, Mitch? We made it public because we know that our customers are making decisions and plans based on what we're developing. And we want to provide them with the best chance and give them insights into the, the work that we're doing. So if you want to get access to that roadmap, it's available right now on GitHub. So if you hop along to github.com slash AWS slash containers hyphen roadmap, or you can type it into your favorite search engine looking for the term AWS container roadmap, you'll be able to find that and start to really see what we're working on and provide feedback and add issues of your own if there are certain features or capabilities that you'd like us to add to services like ECS, ECR, Fargate, or EKS. Cool. So look, if you click through off a landing page, you'll see the roadmap is organized into a few categories. So there's just shipped, which is kind of obvious. There's coming soon, which means, you know, think a couple of months out, give or take. Then we've got, we're working on it. So in progress, a bit further out, we might still be working through, you know, the implementation details or scoping stuff out and researching. So we're thinking about it. You know, this may still mean we're designing or thinking about, you know, how this might actually work. The roadmap is public, but is everything on there, Mitch? Great question. Um, the majority of the development work that's going on around ECS, Fargate, ECR, EKS, and, and some of the AWS sponsored open source projects are included on the roadmap. There's always going to be some technologies that we're very excited about that we're going to launch without notice to surprise and delight our customers. 
I noticed very recently that we also launched the CloudFormation roadmap on GitHub as well. And I think there's also the AppMesh roadmap, which we can talk about a little later. Yeah, very awesome there, Mitch. Awesome that we're putting more of these publicly available. So we've talked about container orchestrators. Um, we've talked about containers as a mechanism for deploying modern applications. Um, but obviously, modern applications need to talk to one another. And underpinning that is the network. Um, so let's talk about container networking. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, that we have deep and native integrations when we built Amazon ECS. For those customers that are already using the AWS platform, especially those that are new to the platform, these native integrations make it a lot easier to reason about how things like security and, and networking work in a containerized world. ECS supports a number of different modes of networking to meet most of the common customer use cases. Bridge networking is the default Docker mode of networking. And what it does is it connects all of the containers on an EC2 host to the same network bridge. This mode of networking allows for maximum task or container density per EC2 instance because you've got no dependency on the number of network interfaces that the EC2 instance needs to support. Again, as trade-offs, packing maximum density on the EC2 host but sharing the same single ENI or elastic network interface. Great in some ways, but it can cause challenges in other areas. Mitch, I was working with a customer who was experiencing for their given workload an increased latency of around 300%. So we're talking a baseline here of 30 milliseconds between bridge and the other type of container networking. So I've kind of got a warm lead in for you, Mitch. Stealing my thunder, stealing my thunder. Uh, task networking, yes, the, the other type of uh, container networking in, in air quotes there. So this is a feature that we launched um, to ECS in around about 2017. So task networking or uh, AWS VPC mode of networking as it's called in the, uh, in the API and in the console, allocates uh, an ENI or an elastic network interface to each task which is a collection of one or more containers. And this provides a number of benefits like being able to attach security groups to individual tasks. Now with this model, customers can then implement micro-segmentation of their containerized applications. Prior to task networking, all of the containers, as I mentioned before, shared one ENI. This meant that the rules that were defined on the security groups, which were applied to the primary ENI for the EC2 instance, also applied to the tasks running on the instance. Task networking is awesome. It brings all the goodness that VPC brings, just as you mentioned, but there's one drawback. You mentioned that maximum density part before, Mitch, and typically, you know, we see that customers get around three times the density in running containerized workloads over a hypervisor, you know, in this case, EC2. But if you look at the ENIs, those elastic network interfaces, they are limited by the EC2 instance type and family, and they can often limit the number of containers to be placed in task networking mode, despite having adequate CPU and RAM being available. So check your instance type and family out for ENI limits as your mileage will vary. Now we have recently made changes to increase the number of ENIs to be associated to EC2 instances. But for reference, an M5 2x large allows you to use four ENIs, which means only four containers. And for a system with eight vCPUs and 32 gigs of RAM, that's a lot of RAM and a lot of vCPU just to run four containers. So understand the two and pick the appropriate network mode that meets your needs. That networking overview, Mitch, was in the context of ECS. EKS, Kube, or as the cool kids say, K8 is a little bit different. Walk us through this, and I'm going to pay special attention here as it's something I have zero experience with. Before we jump into that, the true litmus test of how much of a cool kid you are is how you pronounce the Kubernetes command line utility. Is it Kube Control, Kube Cuddle, Kube CTL? What would you say, Shane? Ooh, well, I don't have that much Kube experience. I'm going to go Kube Cuddle. <laughs> nice. Well, I think you're in the kind of cool kid category there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tell us how it works, Mitch. 
Righto. So networking Kubernetes um, and in Amazon EKS is a little bit different uh, to, to what we just described for ECS. So Kubernetes has some networking principles that govern or, or dictate how networking on Kubernetes should work. And people working with Kubernetes and building solutions for Kubernetes take these into consideration. Some of those principles or the, the three of those principles that are out there that are important are the following. All containers must be able to communicate with each other without using NAT. All of the nodes in a cluster must be able to communicate with all of the containers in a cluster also without using NAT. And the IP address that a container sees itself as must be the same as the IP address others see it as. Now, Kubernetes has a number of networking providers that help deliver and achieve this networking model. One of the ones that we use quite a bit at AWS, and I'm going to talk about more very shortly, is CNI, or Container Networking Interface. So when you're running Amazon EKS, we support the use of a CNI plugin that we developed called the AWS VPC CNI Network Plugin. It's an open source project, and it's currently sitting at around about version 1.5.3. Now, it's the job of the CNI plugin to wire up the networking of the containers. And the concepts here differ considerably from ECS, from what you've just explained. So it's a bit different, I'm assuming, how one wires things up. But I guess, Mitch, because this isn't using you know, AWS VPC networking mode, can we provide fine-grained controls like we can on EKS with ECS? So currently, it's not possible to attach AWS native security groups to pods, which are the Kubernetes equivalent of a task in ECS. Um, the VPC CNI plugin, though, does play very nicely with Project Calico, which is a network policy engine that was built by the team over at Tigera. And what this means is that you can define those finer grained controls that guide or govern whom can talk to whom within your cluster using native Kubernetes network policies. Now, the VPC CNI plugin, as I said, it's an open source project. And like most things, it's constantly evolving. So I would encourage you to check out the project on GitHub and see if there's some interesting things that you'd like to take part in, contribute, or even if you've got feedback, we'd love to hear it because we're constantly making changes to that project and that product to make it work better for you. Now, since we're on the topic of networking, I thought it might be a really good segue into the concept of service mesh. So as is always the case, with scale comes new obstacles that need to be overcome. And what we've seen is as customers have started to scale their use of containers and move to more microservices-based application architectures, one of the obstacles that came in to play was in the form of reliable service-to-service -service communication or container-to-container -container communication. And it probably comes as no surprise that the more you decompose your applications, the more parts you have. The medium that's used by these different parts of an application to talk to one another is traditionally or typically the network. And unfortunately, networks aren't always reliable. Now, that might be a bit of a sweeping statement, but it's something that you should always keep in the back of your mind, especially when you're building distributed systems. If you're planning on building a distributed application or a distributed system, I would strongly encourage you to check out the fallacies of distributed computing on Wikipedia. To help address that problem, the service mesh was born. Now, as you know, Shane, I'm an avid listener, and I'm pretty sure you covered service meshes back in episode 46. But for those people out there who didn't catch that episode, Look, yeah, absolutely. Go back and take a listen. But the lowdown or how I like to think of technologies such as Service Mesh, App Mesh, Envoy, Istio, is there a more pure and native approach to networking between containers? Rather than having a central choke point in the form of a load balancer, it's point to point and pure. And when you have thousands of containers out there, you know, it load balancing is probably something from the, I think, even 1970s, someone correct me if I'm wrong, era. Uh, you're full of amazing, interesting facts and, and a true wordsmith, Shane. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I, I think uh, you possibly also have a future in product marketing. Just saying. There we go. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> So I think uh, that the concept or the term uh, service mesh was coined by a company called Buoyant um, some time back now. I forget exactly when. Uh, they also released one of the first service mesh technologies, a project called Linkerd. And all these distributed systems are is an interconnected web of or mesh of services or an application network, if you will. And that's why I really agree with that term service mesh. In some cases, calls come in to the service from the outside world, and we often refer to this as north-south. But in a lots of cases, services need to talk to one another, this inter-service communication, and we call this the east-west communication. A service mesh uses an interconnected web of service proxies to intelligently route requests between those services. These service proxies externalize a whole raft of features and capabilities that developers would have otherwise had to build into their application code, including things like retry logic, circuit breaking logic, load balancing, service discovery, standard metric collection, and application tracing information. These service proxies generally operated around layer seven, or the application layer, and are typically deployed using what we call a sidecar pattern. And this is a model whereby a secondary container is attached to a primary application container to augment and or improve the primary application in some way, shape or form. There are a bunch of different service mesh implementations out there today, Shane, and you already mentioned Istio, uh, and the other that, that springs to mind is, is Linkerd. Now, AppMesh is the AWS implementation of a service mesh. It's built using the open source Envoy proxy, which is the service proxy I talked about earlier. And we recently launched support for a number of different features and capabilities in AppMesh, including HTTP-based um, routing policies. This is kind of cool because, as the name suggests, it allows you to route requests to specific services or even versions of services based on the content of a given header. So, for example, I might want to route requests that came in via a CDN by inspecting the X forwarded for header to a different instance in my service. And all of this really helps with application deployment. Yeah, look, just a word of warning, if you're thinking of using a service mesh instead of an elastic load balancer, load balancers aren't going away. Well, not just yet. So Mitch just spoke about north-south versus east-west routing, you know, pretty important concepts here. So our recommendation is you use our elastic load balancing tier to handle all internet traffic. So that's the north-south. And that's because today, AppMesh, aka Envoy, is lightweight. You know, it doesn't have a lot of the features found in our load balancing tier, such as health checks and so on. But for internal services that connect to other services within an AWS region, a mesh approach provides flexibility, consistency, and a greater degree of control and monitoring for service communication. It is the path forward. Now, Mitch, one of the questions I get asked a lot, and actually only yesterday by one of Australia's most popular websites, is around observability and monitoring. If we look through the lens of migrating, let's say, traditional compute, so EC2, how does the shift to containers change how we approach observability and monitoring? So containers and the application components that run inside of those containers can come and go very quickly. So that means you have to take a slightly different approach when you're building monitoring solutions for these highly dynamic environments. There are three core areas that we generally need to focus on and think about with regards to observability, especially in containers and distributed applications, and they are logging, monitoring, and, and debugging. So when things go wrong, we generally need to know why it went wrong and, and how it went wrong. Logs really provide the context that we need to investigate these types of issues. These logs, especially in a containerized world where we have ephemeral workloads that can come and go very quickly, need to be shipped to a central location for analysis. When you're using services like AWS Fargate, you can enable a number of different log drivers or providers within your task definitions to ship these logs from standard out 
straight over to AWS services like CloudWatch or even third-party solutions like Splunk. Some really exciting news that we launched recently, a GA version of the Container Insights for CloudWatch. Yeah, um, I think we covered it when it was in public preview about four episodes ago. It has really shifted the dial here on observability, and it's good to see that it's now GA, and you also don't need to rebuild your ECS cluster. Yeah, definitely. Look, with the introduction uh, of Container Insights for CloudWatch, you can use CloudWatch to monitor and isolate and diagnose the problems that might be occurring inside of your containerized applications. And it integrates really nicely with the CloudWatch dashboard, so you can actually see visually the resources that are being used by certain parts of your containerized infrastructure. Shane, let me ask you something else. Have you ever heard of FluentBit? I haven't. You know, I've heard of FluentD, and my son also has a microbit educational... uh... Controller, uh, is it kind of the same? I'm guessing they're probably not. Uh, definitely not the same as your microbit educational controller. Uh, somewhat similar to FluentD, but not exactly the same. So both FluentD and FluentBit were written by an organization called Treasure Data, and both of them provide log collection and forwarding capabilities. But FluentD, which is the newer of those two projects, was really designed with a distributed environments and a small footprints in mind. We recently launched a FluentBit plugin for AWS Container Image, which you can use to route logs to Amazon CloudWatch and Amazon Kinesis Data Firehose destinations. And these include places like S3, Amazon Elasticsearch Service, or Amazon Redshift. We also recently launched a public preview of a new feature called FireLens for Amazon ECS. And with FireLens, you define log routing rules within your ECS task definitions. With FireLens for Amazon ECS, you can ship your logs to almost any destination thanks to FluentBit's rich ecosystem of plugins. Now, not all logs are of equal importance in this world, and with FireLens and FluentBit, you can also do interesting things like filtering out logs at the source, so only the really important logs get persisted centrally, which is going to help you diagnose your problems much more quickly, and obviously saves you some money in terms of storage cost of the logs. You can find out a lot more information about the FireLens preview over at the Container Roadmap. So Shane, we've talked a lot about containers, container orchestrators, container networking, and container monitoring. But way back at the beginning of the podcast, I said that containers are the backbone of modern applications. Modern applications are built and tested and deployed using automation, hopefully. And generally speaking, we like to encourage our customers to incorporate security right through that software supply chain. It's a really important part of the process. The move to modern applications is driven by the need to quickly and reliably deliver value to customers or to end users. Services like Fargate and EKS get you some of the way there by providing you with a platform to run your modern applications on, minus a lot of that infrastructure and differentiated heavy lifting. Tools like the Fargate CLI, which you can find by searching for Fargate CLI in your favorite search engine, can help you quickly get started by deploying your applications into Fargate clusters. The open source EKS CTL tool is a really great utility for automating the setup and configuration of your EKS clusters. And in fact, it's now the officially recommended command line tool for EKS. But if we think about the different stages of the software supply chain in the context of containers, there are a number of different areas where we can implement security checks to help remove or mitigate risks. It's generally considered good practice not to run your containers as root. But if you've got hundreds of developers pushing changes all day, every day, how can you keep tabs on that? One of the approaches that we see customers take is linting Docker files to detect some of those common configuration mishaps like running as root before your containers are actually built and shipped out into production. And this is something I encourage everyone to start thinking about. There's a bunch of great tools out there in the ecosystem that can be incorporated into your build pipelines to help with this. For example, there's an open source tool called Hadalint, 
uh, that can pass your Docker files and provide you feedback based on um, what it sees in those files and help you control the build process, potentially stop your builds before your Docker containers make their way into production. If you're using EKS, we recently launched support for a feature called Pod Security Policies, which let you enforce some of these good practices across your Kubernetes cluster. So with Pod Security Policies, you can choose whether or not your cluster allows you to run containers as root. And if you choose not to allow them, Kubernetes acts as a gatekeeper and stops them from launching. Shane. Yes, Mitch. You know as well as I do that keeping secrets within your source code isn't considered good practice. What? I thought it was, actually. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. All right, please continue. Thank you. Uh, so adding a step into your pipeline that ensures nothing sensitive has been pushed into your source code repos is something that we would consider very good practice. And yet again, something that can be done very easily using a range of different open source tools out there. So some really interesting ones, and I really like this one because it's got a good name, is, is Trufflehog. Um, and GitLeaks is, is something else that I've seen a lot of customers use as part of their build pipeline to scan the source code in its, in its, in its repos just to make sure there's nothing in there that looks uh, like it might be secret material. Um, as I mentioned earlier, containers are built using layers. And sometimes you know the complete lineage of your container images and you built all of those layers, but other times you don't, um, especially if you're pulling images down from public uh, container repositories like Docker Hub. But in all cases, it's still good practice to do some kind of vulnerability scanning of your container images before you move them into production. There are plenty of tools out there, both commercial and open source, that can be integrated very nicely into your build and deployment pipelines that will help with this. Um, some examples of open source tools include Claire and Anchor. And I think we have a blog post sitting out somewhere in the blog sphere that shows you exactly how to do this with AWS build and deployment tools. If you're interested in finding more about that, I would encourage you to open your favorite search engine and have a look for AWS, Fargate, and Claire. We've got a really great self-guided workshop that shows you how to build these capabilities and more into your own deployment pipeline. So if it's something you're interested in learning more about, open up your favorite search engine and look for AWS Container DevOps Workshop. Hey, Mitch, that is absolutely awesome. I would say some of those tools will be great for our listeners out there because I know personally I've uh, you know dealt with customers in the past that have had sensitive information leaked into public GitHub repositories and tools like Trufflehog and GitLeaks, you know, integrating them into their source, into their build process, I should say, uh, you know, is going to save a lot of time and pain down the track. Excellent. And and again, if people want to see how to integrate those tools, uh, the, the workshop that I mentioned earlier, so the AWS Container DevSecOps workshop shows you exactly how to do that. So really no excuse now not to implement some of those best practices. Now, We've just been through a whole bunch of things that you can do to help secure your software supply chain as it relates to containers. Um, but there's another angle that I'd like to kind of talk to you about now, um, specifically around container isolation and sandboxing. And this is in relation to a project that we launched back at reInvent last year, an open source project uh, that I've had the pleasure of diving into fairly deeply recently. And I was lucky enough to get to do a talk at Sydney Summit uh, earlier in the year on this on this project. And that project's called Firecracker. Awesome. You know, I played with it for Tech Chat some time ago, but it was some time ago. It was post reInvent last year. So eager to hear what you got up to. So let me tell you what Firecracker is. Simply put, it's a virtual machine monitor or a VMM specifically built to run lightweight micro virtual machines. And then inside of these lightweight micro virtual machines, you can run containers. Firecracker helps address the security versus speed versus efficiency trade-offs that often have to be made when running containers or function-based services at scale. So Firecracker is based on the Linux KVM. It's written in Rust and unlike some of the more traditional VMMs, Firecracker was built with an intentionally limited device model. 
Think about containers. Do they need HDMI sockets? Do they need floppy disk drives? Probably not. And this is really important because the smaller device models mean that they have less code, which means that it's easier to optimize Firecracker for security and efficiency, both of which were core tenets of the Firecracker project. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things that stood out to me was it has a single button keyboard. So look, Firecracker runs today on Intel processors only with support for AMD and ARM coming later in 2019. You can run Firecracker on AWS.metal instances, so bare metal, as well as any other bare metal server, including on-premise environments and developer laptops. To get started, we have a getting started guide, but all you need to do is clone our GitHub repo. As you can see, Shane, this is a giant leap forward, but it's just the first step. So go along, star the repo, download it, have a play. We'd love to get some feedback. Awesome. So Mitch, we could keep on talking along these lines for ages and ages. I know personally, I've learned a lot here, but we're out of time today. So in recapping today's show, it was a cracker of a show. Dare I say, a firecracker of a show. Oh no, Shane. Like I know it was Father's Day last week in this part of the world, but are you still allowed to say that? It's always time for a dad joke. Look, but back to it. A container-themed affair. We started the show reminiscing about container history, going back way back, looking at where we came from and how we arrived at the position we are in today and gave a quick overview of our container offerings, ECS, EKS, and Fargate. I posed a fictitious question about container orchestration, what options are available and the pros and cons between each platform. We then looked at our container roadmap. So pop that into your favorite search engine to get an understanding of what has shipped, what's coming soon and what we're working on. They say, if you're not keeping score, it's just practice. So Mitch ran us through the approaches we need to take as we make the shift through the containers around observability and monitoring. We also spoke a little bit about deployment practices and approaches you can take when deploying containers. And to close the show out, we once again touch base with Firecracker, which provides hardware level isolation with the convenience of containers and underpins many of the container and serverless offerings on AWS. It's open source, so feel free to download it, kick the tires and have a play. Mitch, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here on Tech Chat today. And look, listeners, if you like this format and having a special guest, let us know at awstechchat at amazon.com. Thank you very much, Shane. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've had a really great time. Yeah, it was awesome, Mitch. Look, listeners, keep us honest. Feedback is always welcome. And as you know, it helps drive the direction of this show. Join us again in two weeks' time, to which we'll be back with a round of updates that occurred in the last month. But until next time, bye for now and keep on building. Bye-bye and keep contained. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.